Sorry. Yep, we, oh. yeah, we're just coming again. Oh. <laughs> we're already up, up the stairs. One, two, three. Who else is in the front row? Grandpa?
as well. And so it rolls out because you can show, show take a picture. Of it. And it said,
Well, it seems like a good idea on paper. Well, why would I own the machine? I'll just email a can of file and it'll be done. No. No, 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 no. Always problems. Always problems.
Good morning and happy Easter. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Psalm 69, 21. You've already missed number two, so we had a we had a great service. Jared brought us a wonderful message, and breakfast was great. Thank you to all who helped with that. And now we are in worship hour. Special offering being received for the foyer restoration. Uh, just mark that out some way when you put your thing in the box. Men's Bible study uh, this Tuesday at 10 a.m. at Clouds. Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7. You see uh, Andrea's number there. She's the contact person. Uh, our um, corrections for the directory on the clipboard, which is, I believe, on the foyer. So if you need to make a correction, do so. LPRC Spring Fundraiser is coming this month. Uh, the information is on the helps board. That's the one right out here. And you can see uh, that we've been working on the foyer area. It's kind of cool. Those walls are open first time in about 150 years or so. That's a long time. Um, anything I've missed? New acts and facts. New acts and facts. It's right here. You can see it. Always good stuff in there. Not that we need to be convinced, right? But it's, it's great. It's great to hear the other side because we're bombarded with the other stuff. All right, then. Our scripture for meditation comes from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27. Read verses 27 through 44.
Let's stand together and ask the Lord's blessing on our service. George, can I ask you again? Yeah. Amen. Take your red trinity and turn to number 253, 253 in the red hymnal. <clears throat> There is a fountain. 
opportunity to have your favorite hymn, if you have a favorite hymn that you would like to sing. <laughs> I have a jumping bean in the back. Yes, Naomi. Fifty-one in the purple. Okay. Do you have a reason for this one? Okay. Um, I do not know this. Sing it twice. I, I sure. Fifty one. <coughs> oh yeah. Just making sure that. Okay. You good? That's all you. <clears throat> Play loud. Our scripture reading this morning is found in John, the 19th chapter, starting in verse 28 and reading through verse 37. When you have found it, please stand for the reading of God's word. John 19, verses 28 and following. <clears throat> After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said... To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. 
Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. May God add his blessing to his spoken word. Please be seated.
join the choir in standing and turn to number 246 again in the Red Trinity, 246. Our scripture text this morning is taken from John chapter 19. John 19, verses 28 and following. In our series on the sayings of Christ from the cross, we looked at the word of anguish last week, My God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? 
Darkness came upon the scene at that crucifixion from the 6th to the ninth hour. That'd be from noon to 3 p.m. in the afternoon. We noted that many Old Testament predictions which identified darkness and, and strange aberrations in the sky as indicative of the judgment of God on sin. Luke tells us that the sun failed that day. It stopped shining. A sign of God's judgment on Jesus as he bore the sins of his people. We drew out a number of lessons. Number one, we learned that God is more than love. He is also just and holy. Jesus bore our sins on the tree and took our punishment. He was abandoned by God. Just as hell one day will be the abandonment of God for all who do not repent of their sin. God shows us what he thinks of sin at the cross. So if you want to know what he thinks of sin, take a good look at the crucifixion. Secondly, Jesus' cry of anguish demonstrated his unflinching fidelity to God. I mean, he still addressed God in a personal way as his God. From Psalm 22, we were able to enter into his thoughts and see him plead with God to be near to him. But God did not come quickly and God did not help him. The measure of our faith is always in the hour of trial. It is always easy to trust God when everything is going well, but in the hour of trial... That's when our faith is tested. Well, today's study brings us to the word of suffering. Initially, of physical suffering, to be sure. Whereas the word of anguish we looked at last week was more to do with his spiritual suffering, the abandonment of God. So as we come today to our study, let's ask the Lord for enablement. Holy Father, send your spirit upon us. We're looking at your holy word, but we won't understand it. and We certainly won't grasp the significance of these words unless your spirit shows us. And even in that, I'm sure that we will only understand to a degree because we are not, we're not, holy in perfection like Christ was. And yet to suffer as a criminal to suffer as a sinner under the wrath of God, bearing the sins of all of his people. What a tremendous, tremendous suffering that must have been. Help us to see some of it, to appreciate it, to love you all the more for it, and most of all, to be thankful because you didn't have to do this. You chose to do it because of your great love. Bless us in this hour then, in Jesus' name, amen. We're looking this morning at the word of suffering when Jesus says, I am thirsty, I am thirsty. John is the only gospel writer who records these words, but then he was the only disciple, the apostle, that was there to hear the words. All the rest had fled, you remember. He too, initially, but he gained his composure and came back. I mentioned last week that Matthew's account does talk of a man running away quickly to fetch a sponge 
soaked in vinegar, put it on the end of a stick to give it to Jesus on the cross. But John's account tells us why the man did that. He too heard Jesus declare that he was thirsty, and so he ran to fetch the sponge. This too was predicted of Christ in the Old Testament. Psalm 69 verse 21 states, They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. See, Old Testament record is very precise. No essential element of the death of God's Son was overlooked. Everything was predicted beforehand so that you and I would believe in him when he made his dying statements from the cross. Just to recap a bit. The betrayal by a friend. Psalm 41 verse 9 says, Even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. The forsaking of the disciples by being offended at him. Psalm 31 verse 11. Because all of my enemies, I am a dread to my friends. I am forgotten by them as though I were dead. The false accusations brought against Jesus by the authorities. Psalm 35 verse 11. Ruthless witnesses come forward. They question me on things I know nothing about. They pray, pray, repay me evil for good. They slandered me without ceasing. His silence before his judges. Isaiah 53 verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. His being proven guiltless. Psalm 53 verse, or Isaiah 53 verse 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. The numbering of Jesus with sinners, Isaiah 53, verse 12. He was numbered with the transgressors. His death by crucifixion in Psalm 109, verse 25. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. The mockery of the spectators. I am the object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they just shake their heads. We could go on. The taunt of God not coming to deliver him. You'll find that in Psalm 22, verse 7 and 8. Gambling for his clothes. Psalm 22, verse 18. The prayer for his enemies. Isaiah 53, 12. Being forsaken by God, Psalm 22, verse 1. His thirst, we've already alluded to, Psalm 69, 21. His yielding up of his spirit to God, the Father, Psalm 31, verse 5. The assurance that his bones would not be broken, Psalm 34, verse 20. His burial in a rich man's tomb, Isaiah 53, verse 9. And on and on it goes. Over 200 or more prophecies in the Old Testament concerning Christ. 
All of these prophecies were foretold centuries before they came to pass, and all of them converged on one man in one place at one time in history, in one nation, under one government, under the monotheism of one religion, Judaism. You say, oh, that's all coincidence. Well, that's absurd to say it's coincidence. What we have here is dynamic proof of the inspiration of the scriptures, that the Bible is God-breathed, that God spoke through holy men of old who wrote his prophecies down for all to read, and in the reading to make the connection that the God who ordained the future can accurately predict the future. And in the coming to pass of the prophecies, we are emboldened by reason as well as by faith to believe the written record to be the word of God, the God who cannot lie. And if we do not believe, it isn't because God hasn't given us credible record, which is true and without fault. It is because we choose to live in ignorance while calling ourselves enlightened. We prefer our superstitions over the clear and plain word that comes from heaven. Now consider with me some of the lessons to be learned from Jesus' cry of suffering, I am thirsty. I am thirsty. I think firstly here we have sufficient evidence of Jesus' true humanity. Do you know that in the early days of the church, the controversy over Jesus Christ was not, listen to me, it was not his deity. It was his humanity. That was the controversy in the early days of the church. Some of the New Testament books of the Bible were written to counteract the heresies being propagated concerning Jesus' humanity. John, in particular, attacks the Gnostic heresy, which claimed to have a higher and more heavenly knowledge of God than even the apostles. They took their name from the Greek word to know, gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S. So Gnostic is G-N-O-S-T-I-C. And they taught something like this. If you really want to know the whole truth about Jesus, we have the answer. That's what they thought. But their answer, while, while asserting his deity, denied His humanity. They denied his humanity on the assumption, this is their assumption now, that all material things are evil. And so the holy God of heaven wouldn't have dared to take upon himself a flesh and blood physical body. Can't have that. How absurd to think that God would become encased in flesh. When the Gnostics thought they were protecting God from a charge of defilement or sin, but in actuality, they were destroying the only opportunity sinners have to be redeemed and forgiven. I mean, think about it. If God remains eternal spirit, he cannot die. And if he cannot die, he cannot atone for the sins of his people. And if there is no atonement suitable to God's holiness, we're all 
doomed forever to pay the consequences of our own sin. And that will take an eternity in hell to complete. So what does John say in his first epistle? Let me read it for you. He says, this is how we can recognize the Spirit of God. And now he's going to tell us. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. How do we define whether something is of the Holy Spirit? If they acknowledge that Jesus has come in the flesh. But, he goes on, every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. That's the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. 1 John 4, verse 2 and 3. So, John is arguing for the God-man, for Christ, the anointed of God, God's Son, also being called Jesus, the human being born to Mary. Or again in chapter 5 of the same book, verse 6 and following. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, that is baptism, but by water and blood, death. By death, you see. And so from the initiation of his ministry, To its end, Jesus functioned as both the God-man in one person. At no time was he man only, nor God only, as the Gnostics taught. John goes on to say, We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater about his Son. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because He has not believed the testimony God has given about his son. 1 John 5 verse 9 and following. So this word of suffering then, I am thirsty, is a confirmation of Jesus' humanity. God is spirit, John 4 24 says. Does the spirit ever get thirsty and need a drink? How absurd that is. Thirst is characteristic of human beings and mammals. Do you know that our body consists of more than 75% water? If you're sick for just a few days and your water intake is restricted or you're losing water through bowel problems, you will become dehydrated is the term. Do you know that people are put in hospitals for dehydration? This is a serious problem. You can't lose a lot of your body fluids and still be alive. Jesus was put on the cross at some time around the third hour, according to Mark 15, verse 25. That would be nine in the morning. Last week we talked about the sixth hour, noon, and the ninth hour being 3 p.m., at which time he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So this statement of him being thirsty is after all of this. He had hung on the cross for six hours, from nine in the morning till three in the afternoon, 
He had been there all day in the heat of the day. It was only human to be parched and dehydrated, which he was. Does God get thirsty? The angels do not thirst. God does not thirst. None in glory will ever thirst. For the description of heaven found in Revelation 7 verse 16 says of God's people, Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. But we get thirsty now because we are living in a world of pain. We're living in a world of sorrow. And Christ was thirsty because as a man he identified with his people. The Bible puts it this way. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Hebrews 2, verse 14 and following. His thirst emphasizes his humanity. Secondly, not only do we see in his statement on thirst his humanity, but we learn something of the intensity of his sufferings. Think firstly of his bodily suffering. I would suggest to you that his suffering began long before the Roman soldiers ever laid a hand on him. I mean, after the celebration of Passover in the upper room, the wonderful teachings we have recorded for us in John 13, 14, 15, and 16, those chapters, Jesus and his disciples retired to the Garden of Gethsemane, which means wine press, the word Gethsemane. And there he asked his disciples to pray with him as he went off by himself to pray. And what do we find? They fell asleep. But the Bible says of him that he prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken away from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So here, he's, here he is, and he's talking about a cup. And implied in that is the idea that the cup contains something that he must drink. And what he has to drink is not pleasant because he wants the father to take the cup away if it's possible. So there is a sense of horror in all of this. And there's mystery here. Luke's account tells us an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Luke 22, verse 43 and following. And from this point, Jesus is arrested and taken to the home of the high priest where he is grilled with questions for hour on end. And then he's taken to Pilate for sentencing, who ships him off to Herod, who then ships him back to Pilate. He is then abused and tortured by the soldiers and finally He's led off to be crucified where he's nailed to a tree and exposed to the heat of the day. 
All of this, mind you, with no consideration for food or drink. John tells us that Jesus started out for Golgotha carrying his own cross. Verse 17 of our text. But before long, the weight was too much for him and and the soldiers conscripted a Syrian named Simon to carry it the rest of the way. Luke 13, verse 26. So you see, our Lord was in a weakened state already. The heat of the day only added to his misery and to his thirst. In Psalm 22, we have a vivid description of our Lord's physical agony. The psalmist says in verse 14 and following, I am poured out like water. Poured out like water. Hmm. Dehydrated. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. Again, signs of dehydration. My strength, he's going on. My strength is dried up like like a potsherd, that is like a clay pot. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Wow. Note all the indications here of heat and dryness. Poured out. His vitality is gone. His heart has turned to wax. It's melted within me, he says. His strength is dried up like a clay plot that has been, you know, fired in a kiln to drive out the moisture and make it hard like stone. That's a clay pot. His tongue sticks to the roof of his mouth. He's not able to salivate anymore. And finally, he is a man laid in the dust. What's dust? Well, dust is dirt deprived of moisture. That's what dust is. Wow, all these descriptions. May I tell you that this was crucifixion? This was crucifixion. This is what our Lord experienced in his body. Crucifixion was death by exhaustion and suffocation. Normally it took days to accomplish. The agony of it all described in Jesus' statements on thirst is that he suffered physically. But think for a moment of a different kind of thirst. The thirst of spiritual suffering. We all know that the physical trials we endure in the body affect the soul. Proverbs 17, 22 says, A cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. A crushed spirit dries up the bones. Jesus had just acknowledged that God the Father had forsaken him, In the hour of his most urgent need. And if that were not tragedy enough. He was aware like David in his sin. That the heavy hand of God was upon him. 
And my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer, says David. Psalm 32, verse 4. Yet it wasn't the summer heat to which David referred. Notice how he words it. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. I'm not, it's not the heat of summer, but it's, it feels just like that with regard to my strength. You see, it was instead the heat of God's displeasure and punishment for his sin. And yet he speaks of this as sapping his strength. And Christ, though truly experiencing the heat of the Judean sun, is nonetheless exposed to the wrath of God as he bore the sins of his people. Jeremiah's lament for Judah are fitting words in the mouth of Christ as well. He says, Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look around and see. Is any suffering like my suffering that was inflicted on me, that the Lord brought on me in the day of his fierce anger? From on high he sent fire, sent it down into my bones. He made me desolate, faint, all the day long, my sins have been abounding in, bound on me as a yoke. By his hands they were woven together. They have come upon my neck and the Lord has sapped my strength. He's handed me over to those I cannot withstand. People have heard my groaning, but there's no one to comfort me. Lamentation 1 verse 12 and following. Brethren, there is nothing, this is nothing but the thirst of a parched and barren soul, of one beaten down in his spirit under the heavy hand of God. There is a thirst of the soul to be at peace with God and to be found within his good graces. David in his suffering said, As the deer pants for streams of water, so... My soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me all day long, Where is your God? Psalm 42, verse 1 and following. Have you ever experienced this thirst of soul? If you're human, you have. God made you and me for himself. We bear his image. There will never be quietude and peace in your life so long as your sin forms a barrier against close ties with God. And in your sin you will experience like David, like Christ on the cross, something of the thirst of a parched soul. And that thirst is quenched only in Jesus Christ, only in the forgiveness of God which comes through him. Until you seek forgiveness in his blood, the heavy hand of God will ever be upon you and you will melt under its heat. May I say it this way, there is no agony of soul like being under the punishment of God for sin. 
And there's no refreshment to the soul like the grace and love and mercy of our God. The living water pouring over us and refreshing us in our souls. The third lesson we learn here from Jesus' statement on thirst is his deep submission to the will of God that's expressed in the scriptures. Our text reads, notice how it reads, knowing that all was completed and so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. I think it's fair to say of our Lord that his whole life was bathed in the precepts of the word of God. He had studied the Bible as a Jewish boy growing up in the home with Joseph and Mary. This is how he grew in wisdom and in favor with God and men, according to Luke 2, verse 52. This is what the word of God does to people, you know. It, it transforms your thinking into God's thoughts and God's thinking and living by God's thoughts makes you a fit subject to live before God and among men. And when temptation arises to sin, as it did with Jesus when he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, it was his knowledge of the word of God which kept him from succumbing to those temptations. He did battle with the devil and won by quoting the Bible to thwart the deceiver's lying seduction. Oh, and when controversy arose over Jesus' practice of healing the sick on the Sabbath day or on issues of religion and morality, just Jesus once again turned to the Bible to confute the thoughts and errors of the Pharisees and scribes whose own teachings were but the traditions of men given kind of a pious veneer. That's religion, folks, but it's not Christianity. And behind this all was Jesus' desire to please God in all things. He knew that the scriptures were God's will for its life. He wanted to be found within the will of God. As Jesus hung there on the cross, he thought of a prophecy in the Bible which had not yet been fulfilled concerning him. The prophecy, as we've noted, is in Isaiah, or excuse me, Psalm 69, verse 21, which says, prophesies now, they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Gall uh, is the Greek word in the Septuagint, gola, and it means bile. Mm. Gill points out that such bitter substance was an extract from the heads of serpents. Ooh. A poison which was not only deadly if ingested in large amounts, but as our NIV study Bible bears out, was often used as an opiate to deaden pain by impairing the perceptions. A drug, in other words, a drug. 
This would explain why Jesus, upon tasting the mixture given to him on the sponge, refused to ingest it. Why? We wanted to be fully in control of his faculties in his dying hour. Not a dope head. Not whopped out of his mind. Not knowing what he was experiencing. But I say it this way, there would have been no offering of the vinegar on a sponge, no fulfillment of this prophecy in Psalm 69 had Jesus not said in a sufficiently loud voice, I am thirsty. I'm thirsty. And it was this statement which prompted those around the cross to offer him the vinegar. His thoughts were to bow to the will of God revealed of him in the Bible. And if the Bible said, you will be given poison to drink, then Jesus wanted that done in his life because God had willed it so. I have to ask you and I have to ask me, is this true of us? You say what? What? Is it true of us that the scripture is the final authority for what you believe and what you do? Is it the final court of appeal for your actions? If you find in its sacred pages the will of God spelled out for you, are you eager to implement what you did not know before. Ever learning, we should be ever learning from the word. Is the scripture the light which guides you daily, illuminating your walk before men and before God? 